Father, we come before you, uh, bowing down before you and worshiping you. And Father, I pray that you would lift up our eyes uh, this evening to see uh, how glorious you are. Father, I pray as we uh, study your scripture that you would uh, just show us wonderful things in your word. And Father, as we do uh, have a time of great uncertainty, um, really for several years, Father, and uh, wars and rumors of war uh, still going on. Father, pray that we would um, lift up our eyes uh, to, uh, to not fear those things, but to rest in you. Father, I pray for um, all of us here, Father, that we would uh, be able to truly rest in you, uh, even this night. Uh, and Father, pray you be with me now as I uh, bring your word, pray that you would forgive my sins and use my words even for your purposes. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Dave Snoke, and I am now officially an elder right here, uh, having been reconfirmed and so on. Uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 90, and uh, this, this sermon is going to be a little bit actually of a, uh, of a sort of a team project here because our Bible study uh, community group just looked at this a couple weeks ago, and I got lots of good thoughts from that Bible study, so I'm going to bring in some of that stuff uh, in the sermon, uh, and um, just to give you a little bit of a, uh, a sense of that, uh, what we've been doing is we've been doing what's called uh, manuscript studies, uh, sometimes called inductive study, where uh, you really spend a fair amount of time just observing the text without trying to draw application uh, or draw theological principles too quickly, and just sort of noticing uh, what's really in that. So I'm going to try to do that, to just bring out uh, some observations uh, on the text that we, uh, that we noticed as we were uh, looking at it a couple weeks ago in our study. Uh, so this is Psalm 90. It's printed in your bulletin. Uh, and our uh, pattern here is when I'm done with the reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and the response is thanks be to God. So this is a prayer of Moses, the man of God, uh, and uh, this is the word of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by strength of, a reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, 
So let me just start with some observations, as I was saying, uh, really looking at the text uh, from sort of an inductive approach. Uh, one of the things that we noticed in this was all the time words. I don't know if you picked that up as we were going through, but think about all the words here that just have to do with time in one way or another. So we have God uh, has been our dwelling place in all generations. Uh, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. A thousand years are but as yesterday when it is past. Hear all the time words there. Uh, then there's morning and evening. In the morning, our life uh, goes up, and in the evening, it withers and fades. Uh, and then, verse 9, all our days pass away. We bring our years to an end, more time words. The years of our life, in verse 10, uh, are 70 or 80. Uh, and then back down, verse 14, uh, satisfy us in the morning that we may rejoice in you. So there's, there's time, just keeps coming in uh, all over the place. And so it kind of already is a cue to us that there's sort of a grand theme here, uh, that we're, we're thinking about something big, the eternal, uh, thinking about uh, all of these things. The other thing to pick up is the contrast, because there's the contrast between us as having a really short time and God as being eternal and everlasting. So you see some of the images that are here are things that are really fleeting and short, right? Like the grass, uh, now grass doesn't literally grow up in the morning and die that very night, but it's very short-lived. Uh, there's a dream that passes away. Uh, there uh, are uh, all these things that says like a watch in the night that comes and goes. There's all these short things. And then by contrast, we have all of the words talking about God as being from everlasting to everlasting for whom a thousand years are but just a, a blink in the night, uh, so to speak. Uh, and so we're lifting up our eyes really to see the contrast between God uh, and man. And then finally, just one more sort of general observation uh, before I go into, into some of the theology of this. Um, uh, if you notice verses one through 11, first of all, the whole psalm is directly addressing God. There's a lot of yous, uh, Y-O-U, uh, in there if you notice. that It's a lot directly talking to God and saying, God, you are like this, you have done this, you do this, and so on. Verses one to 11 are, you could say, statements to God uh, sort of reflecting back to him who he is uh, and talking to him uh, and really comparing us in his sight to who he is. And then there's a, a twist or a turn in verse 12 where then it says, what do we do in response to this? It says, teach us, again, still addressing God, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And then all the verses after that are in the sort of the, uh, the blessing kind of may it be the following thing. Uh, there's a sense in which it sounds in English like it's in command form, like God, you need to do all these things, but it's really more in the sense of may it be so, may it be so, may all these uh, things happen and may all these blessings uh, come from you, God. Uh, and so the hinge point there is verse 12, uh, which says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now, if you've been around this church for some years, you've probably heard me talk about what's called the vanity theme in scripture. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is, of course, the, the biggest example of that, of uh, the vanity, vanity, all is vanity. But it's not limited just to uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. We see it right here in this psalm. There's several other psalms uh, that talk that way. And uh, in your additional scripture, I'm not going to read them, but uh, there's a bunch of verses listed in Old Testament and New Testament which really have this, uh, the same theme. Uh, 
And um, one of the things uh, about, I'm going to unpack what this vanity theme means, uh, but one of the things that should jump out at us is how it says this is actually core to getting a heart of wisdom, understanding this vanity theme. So a lot of times I would guess that some people skip over these parts. I don't like these parts. Uh, They're too depressing. Uh, But actually, uh, the Bible, in almost every one of these vanity passages, says you want to get wisdom, go straight for this. This is the place where you'll find wisdom. Now, if you think about that, that's... It's kind of like an offer you can't refuse, right? So you say like, okay, who here, raise your hand, does not want wisdom, right? So like, you know, you can't really be against wisdom, right? But have you actually made it a life goal to to seek wisdom, to be a wise person? Maybe you think, well, that's just for like the special class of wise people. uh, And, you know, I'm just a regular person, so I don't need wisdom. But that's not the way the Bible talks about it. It says, you know, if you want to follow Christ, uh, you should seek wisdom, and if you don't, you are, to put it bluntly, a fool. Uh, so really, put before us, is two paths. Do you want to remain foolish, or do you want to seek wisdom? And if you want to seek wisdom, it says, this is where you go. Uh, and you start with this vanity theme. So let me unpack this vanity theme a little bit. That word vanity is not here, but the concept is. Really, you could say it's uh, a word for transitory uh, and so you think about all the passages in the scripture that talk about man is but a breath, or as you read in James, a mist uh, that comes and goes. Now, um, how is that not depressing? You know, for a lot of people, they say, well, you know, that doesn't sound very encouraging. That doesn't sound like a place where I want to go uh, for wisdom. And we have here in verse 12, uh, this turning point verse that says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So is that like your prayer to say, well, God, make me remember how short my life is. That's, that's, that's really where I wanna start my day. Um, well, that's where it says we go to get wisdom to start out. There's a similar thought in the book of Ecclesiastes that says the wise man uh, spends time at a funeral uh, and it's is, 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 is good to be at a funeral to remember uh, the shortness of our lives. Um, Well, I'm going to kind of take us on a little bit of a downward road, and then I'll bring us back up. Um, One of the things that is in many of these passages, like we saw in James and in some of your additional scriptures there, is the consequences of this brevity of life uh, or the, the, the transitory nature of things, is that all of our work and all the things we do are but for a short time, and many of them get undone. Uh, Almost everything we do uh, may get undone, uh, and if it doesn't get done in our generation, uh, maybe it'll get get undone uh, after we die. Uh, And you could ask yourself, why why is that depressing? Uh, I think it's it's depressing because very much at our core, a lot of us want to say, I want to do something or grab onto something that seems permanent and solid. And so I've talked with people about, you know, wrestling with their calling in life. What kind of job should I pursue? What kind of life? Where should I live? Should I be a missionary? And so on. And oftentimes the subtext is, what can I do that will really make a mark? What can I do that will really change the world or have some kind of permanent value? I don't want to just do fleeting things. I want to do something permanent. 
Uh, and the vanity theme just turns that on its head and says, well, the answer is nothing. <laughs> Everything that you do is fleeting and transitory, uh, and you may make your plans, but they could get undone. I mean, think about it. Uh, who last year, in your you know, schedule of plans for this year, put down uh, Russia declares war on Ukraine as like one of the things that would be in your, your thought process to account for, <laughs> right? Like, you know, things happen that we just are totally out of our control. Um, so one of the things I just want to make as a sort of a, uh, to underline this point is sometimes people will read these vanity texts and the way they read them is something like the following, well, all those other people are doing work that's vanity, but us Christians, we do really important work that lasts forever. You know, so their work is vanity, but not ours. Uh, but that's not the way scripture talks. The vanity theme says, all of you, your work is passing away and is fleeting. Uh, and it really, just a little thought, uh, you think about this, uh, you know, Paul talked about uh, in one of his letters, you know, one person plants a seed, uh, one person waters, uh, and, but it's God who gives the growth. I mean, in other words, even in Christian ministry, which you might say, this is a great thing to do, to call people to Christ, to call people to faith, and yet so much is out of our control. We can't make people become Christians. And we could pour our lives into somebody and find out that they walk away from it. Uh, so our ministry is not something that we can cling to and say, well, I know that if I put enough work into this ministry that good things will come of it. And you even have to go back not very far to say, think of all the great church movements uh, that have come and gone uh, and are no more. That God even does not guarantee that any church institution is gonna last forever. Uh, that all of it is fleeting and transitory. And so uh, we can't make an exception and say, well, uh, I see the lesson of the vanity passage is not to pursue the stuff that the other people are doing, which is foolish. Let, tell me the really important stuff to do that really is important. That's not what the vanity theme is saying. It's not what this psalm is saying. So what is it saying? Uh, essentially, it's saying the only thing that you can land on that is permanent is God himself. That God is the anchor. So if you read every one of these passages, Ecclesiastes here and so on, it's not depressing because it's not just saying, uh, you're gonna die, end of story. It's saying you are small compared to God and God is eternal and God is the mighty one. And you will, as Augustine said, you will not find your rest. Uh, you will always be restless until you find your rest in him. He is the only one who is permanent. And in other words, it's not, and sometimes it's a, it's a thing we can slide into as Christians to be, in some sense, wanting to serve God, but becoming so fixed on, fixated on our work for God that becomes the thing in front of our eyes that we actually lose sight of God himself. And so it becomes, I'm busy, busy, busy doing all this stuff for God, but I never actually step back and think about God. And then really not that much different from the person who's busy, busy, busy about some other thing, about getting rich or something else. I'm still focusing on the fleeting things of this world and forgetting about the anchor, uh, forgetting about the one uh, who is eternal and from everlasting to everlasting. So every one of these verses, it's not to simply say, you know, your work uh, passes away, but it's to say, fixate your eyes on the one who is permanent. That's the only place where you can rest is on God himself. He is the eternal one, uh, and he is the one who is our anchor. Uh, now, um, just continuing a little bit with this uh, vanity theme, 
Uh, there's sort of two sides to this state of affairs, and we see that in the psalm in front of us here. Uh, there is one sense in which the state of affairs is due to God's curse on sin in the world. Uh, in the book of Genesis, it talks about from the very creation, people sinned, uh, and God took away the tree of eternal life so that everybody would die. And so there is a sense in which we have a longing for the way it should have been, that we should have been able to eat from the tree of life and have eternal life, uh, that there was something broken. And so we see that in these middle verses here that are really quite negative. It says, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in your presence. Our days pass away under your wrath and our years come to an end like a sigh. There's a, a real sense in which uh, we are um, suffering under a curse that is placed on all of humanity uh, because of sin. And so that leads to a greater sense of, of transitoriness, that everybody is gonna die, I'm not gonna be able to maintain or improve my work forever because I'm gonna be gone uh, in a few short years. Uh, but there's also a sense in the vanity theme that actually this world was never meant to be forever, that actually there are many transitory things that are just sort of intrinsically that way, uh, and that um, even if we had not sinned, it still would be the case that God is eternal and the eternal anchor, and we are finite and we are creatures, and he's God and we're not. Uh, and that uh, there is a real sense in which um, intrinsically as people, as finite people, uh, we need to bow down and say God is the only eternal one. Even if we had never sinned, it still would be the case that he's the only anchor that we could rest on, that we could not rest on our own good works, uh, even in heaven, uh, that all of the things we do are small in comparison to him. And so that's even true uh, had there not been sin, and yet with sin, uh, it is made even worse because we're kind of ripped out of this world uh, through death. So... Um, where do we go with this then? What, what is, you know, if we uh, think about how to, um, how to apply this, uh, it might be that you would think, well, if you really take this to heart, then the lesson must be just don't bother to do anything, it's pointless. But that's precisely not where scripture goes. In every one of these passages, it says actually we're called to do good work which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Ecclesiastes says, uh, do the good work that God has given to you. Uh, whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might. Uh, and here we see the end of this psalm. Uh, and for us, uh, those of us in the Bible study who are looking at this, uh, we, we pointed out how it's kind of an interesting turn after all of the discussion of the eternal nature of God uh, and our smallness in comparison to him. Uh, then in verse 17, uh, we have... Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So it's not saying don't bother to work, there's no point. It's saying actually do good work, but hold it lightly. Don't grasp onto it to say this is gonna be the thing that is the permanent thing that fills me up. Uh, and um, one analogy I think is a, is a good one, it's not original to me, uh, is um, have you ever seen a tapestry where people sew all these amazing pictures and so on? And if you look at it from the backside and you're really up close to it, you see just a bunch of like random threads. Uh, and oftentimes that's like the way we are in this life, uh, that we're just doing our thing that God has given us to do. 
and we can't see the big picture. And if we were like, you know, this thread, this red thread here that's in front of me is so good, I've got to maintain it forever, I've got to make this like the permanent thing, and then God rips out that thread, like we could be devastated. Uh, and yet, what the scripture says is that there is a grand narrative, that God is building an incredibly beautiful tapestry, and you, if you were to stand back from the eternal perspective of God and see the whole tapestry of history, you would say, it's amazing, there's this incredible thing, all these threads flow together, and they all have exactly the right place, uh, and the ones that were ripped out were replaced with even better, uh, and um, all of it is really, but we don't have the perspective right now. I think I put in the additional scriptures from Ecclesiastes. Um, yeah, it says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He is, and he has also put eternity into man's heart, yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And then his conclusion is to be joyful and do good work and enjoy your life uh, and the things that God has given you. So the conclusion is not to say, uh, give up, don't bother to do any work, but rather to say that the anchor is God and it's his kingdom that is forever. And that is what I put my faith in is gonna be the grand narrative that my work fits into. And I may never see in this life, it may look to me like everything that I did just got undone. Uh, and, and many of the good things that I was pursuing, I failed at. Uh, and yet, God will use it all uh, in his grand tapestry of history to weave this amazing story that is gonna just blow us away when we get to heaven uh, and see what it was all about, to see that, that big picture. So let me just finish with three uh, short applications. Uh, the first one, again, I think is really all through uh, these passages. Uh, is not to be anxious. Um, it's been interesting over the past couple of years and as a church in the past few weeks, the different groups have been sort of reflecting on what did we learn from the last two years? Uh, and uh, maybe some of us didn't uh, really learn a lot, but uh, one of the things that came out in some of our discussion was just realizing how many people spend a good part of their lives controlled by fear uh, and dominated by fear. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't help a lot of times to say, well, just stop being afraid, <laughs> you know. But what the Bible says through and through is, this is where you get your heart of wisdom, right? Where's your heart of wisdom? Well, because if you, you say, look, my fear is that all the things that I'm holding on to are going to evaporate, like sand between my fingers, right? I can't, all the things that I like, uh, might break down, uh, or maybe everybody I like will start to hate me. And, and the Bible says, yeah, that could all happen. Uh, and so in some sense, it alleviates your fears to say, because that's not what it's all about, because it's really all about God and the tapestry that he's building. And so, you know, cheer up, your life is probably less stable than you think it is, right? Um, cheer up, because God is in charge and you're not, uh, and the sooner you understand that, the sooner you'll have a heart of wisdom. Uh, the, and so uh, anxiety can be a, a serious and debilitating thing. Uh, and there's many different things that go into that. But scripture constantly says to remind ourselves, and Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not be anxious. Because look, even the flowers of the field that are grass that rise up and, and, and die tomorrow, 
God has a purpose for them in his grand tapestry, and the same is true for you, that he will use you one way or the other. Uh, and so it may be that you know, your works are swept away uh, or you're incredibly uh, failing at something, uh, but so be it. God is the one who is building his kingdom, uh, and we can uh, put our, our weight on that. And so the lesson we see over and over is to actually do good work, uh, to enjoy the good things that God has made, uh, and yet not to put our weight on them, not to say, this is my anchor. I'm going to get to retirement with all the things just in place, right? Uh, or I'm going to get to a place where all of my kids perfectly obey me. <laughs> um, or I'm going to get to a place where I have accomplished uh, all of the following things and I've written a famous novel. You know, whatever you would fill in the blank. Like, it might happen, but there's a good chance it won't happen, and it's okay, because God is in charge, and if you are faithfully working according to his commands at what he has called you to do, you are adding to that tapestry. You are part of what God remembers uh, and will establish in his kingdom. But the final thing I just wanna uh, really uh, turn around to, and this is, uh, I think, really where this connects with the theme that we've had for the past few months on worship. I just wanna, draw your attention to this psalm and how I would argue this is really the essence of worship, is just seeing God in his true nature, almost glimpsing, you know, pulling the curtain back or the door a crack and getting a peek into heaven and um, seeing that God is utterly different from us in fundamental ways. Uh, there's a book that you probably have heard me if you've been around long enough, a plug a number of times, which is R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. If you've never read it, like just go out and read it in the next year. I mean, like you just have to do it. Um, it I mean, many, many people have talked about how impactful it was, but it is really, you know, you could say it's the same thing that we're reading here in front of us. Notice in verse two, uh, this is very similar to language you'll hear in other places in scripture. It says, it's a really interesting shift. It's in the past tense, you have been our dwelling place before the mountains were brought forth or you had formed the earth or the void. You are God, present tense. That's really an echo of the name of God. <clears throat> God says, I am. My name is I am. Uh, and Jesus takes that up in the New Testament. He says, before Abraham was, I am. It's a weird grammatical thing. In some sense, it doesn't make sense grammatically, except that's the point is that for human beings it doesn't make sense, but God is continually in the present tense, that God is eternal and all things are in the present, so to speak, uh, for God. Uh, and really, again, if you want a heart of wisdom, like take some time to meditate and just let your mind be blown by that thought, blown away by that thought, right? That like we live 70 or 80 years, for God a thousand years this is a blink of an eye, uh, and actually everything is in the present for him. Uh, and he sees the future as well as the past. And he is utterly eternal and unchanging. Like, that should give you a heart of worship. As we come to God in worship, um, I would say fundamentally the heart of worship is to bow down before God and to say, I adore you because you are utterly holy, you are utterly eternal, and you are the creator and I am the creature. And there is nothing in me that can even compare. Uh, there's nothing in this world that could even compare to who you are. Uh, and so sometimes in scripture it talks about lifting up your eyes 
to, to meditate on the eternality of God, the infinitude of God, uh, all of those things we read in the prayer of St. Augustine, um, how mind-blowing it is. And I would argue that worship starts there, that if we come in, as Andy was saying earlier, too quickly saying, God, bless me and fill me up and give me good things, or God, please forgive me uh, for my sins. Uh, All of those are good things, but worship starts with simply the recognition that God is God and you are not. And not only, it's not like you're not even close, (laughs) right? Like God blows you away. Uh, You will never be God and you never have been God, uh, and God is eternally God forever. Uh, And let that kind of sink into your mind to give you a heart of worship to give you a heart of wisdom as you come before him, uh, really awestruck, uh, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, uh, but lift up your eyes to see how different uh, God is from us uh, and how amazing and how really just uh, fundamentally uh, worshipful that is. Um, As we transition into communion, I think it's really just worth thinking about that when we talk about the communion and the sacrifice of Christ, that same God came in human flesh. That God who is the eternal one for whom a thousand years uh, are as a day. Um, that's who we're talking about died on the cross for us. It's not just some nice guy dying on the cross for your sins and mine, uh, but rather the eternal one came and took on human flesh and died for us. And so, as you start to realize who God is, you start to realize how mind-blowing it is that that God is the one who hung on a cross naked and ashamed while everyone mocked him uh, for your sake uh, and for your sins. So let's remember that as we come to communion. Let's, let's pray.